Welcome to Lost River Legends. Our motto, Ex Tenebris, is Latin for Out of the Shadows. We attempt to understand the complex world around us and bring light to subjects hidden in darkness. We explore paranormal topics with guests from all around the world. Now welcome your Lost River Legends hosts, James and Brett. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the latest episode of Lost River Legends. Thank you for being here. Today, James visits with Paola Harris. Paola is an Italian-American photojournalist and investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena. She is also a widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe. She produces the annual Starworks USA Conference in Laughlin, Nevada. Paola has studied extraterrestrial-related phenomena since 1979 and is on personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field. From 1980 to 1986, she assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek of the Project Blue Book with his UFO investigations and has interviewed top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. We want to thank Paula for being on the show. We appreciate her time and her expertise, and we hope everyone enjoys this show, and thanks for listening to Lost River Legends. Hello, everybody. This is James from Lost River Legends, and I am joined today by Paula Harris. She is joining us from Colorado. Welcome to the show, Paula. How are you? I'm doing well, James. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. Our focus today is going to be uh, centered more around uh, humanoid benevolent visitors, people who who don't mean harm, that come from other places that look like us. Well, first of all, let me tell your audience that I'm an investigative journalist. I've worked in the UFO field um, with the nuts and bolts. I mean, just, you know, putting pins and maps for Dr. J. Allen Hynek, people who don't know Dr. J. Allen Hynek should know him from Close Encounters and Third Kind. He's basically, the, he was basically the consultant, but he was an astronomer. So in 1980, I met him by accident because he knows I'm Italian and I can speak the language. He had me work with him. So James, I started out working with the best. I worked with scientists and he's, he was an astronomer. So I was working with just looking at sightings, and I've gone so far from that in 40 years, I don't even know how I got there. Uh, but um, in 1992, I moved to Italy to teach school. I, I have a master's in education, and because I'd worked with Heineck, and Heineck died in 1986, uh, people began to talk to me, and that's when I began to put together the pieces of the puzzle. And Italy is a good place to do it because ufology is not looked at as an entertainment venue the way it is here with people wearing T-shirts and tinfoil hats and having clubs and all that. In Europe, this is a matter of national <coughs> matter of national security, so they're worried because a lot of UFOs are seen over military bases. They're seen, you know, in the Mediterranean. They're watching us with our weapon systems. They're looking at so they're they're looking at it differently. It's not like you go someplace and you wear a t-shirt. So I moved back in 2007 and I was in total shock because we're still the ufology in the United States is still at conferences with blow up green aliens and little little beings and all that stuff and and people don't read and that's the problem. They're getting all of their information from YouTube. So you asked me, and I was surprised that you asked me about all these different cases because I had to go backwards to the 1950s to look at the fact that in the 1950s in Southern California near Landers, uh, the early space people that talked that came here 
were people. They were not little gray. No little gray aliens existed until Betty and Barney Hill. And that was in the 60s. Okay, so that didn't come into what I call our mythology until Betty and Barney Hill. And when that happened, then somebody said, oh, great, let's just stay there because that'll scare the living daylights. And then uh, out of everybody and then people like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and all those guys came to scare everybody saying, oh, yeah, they're here to, like, take your soul and to do this and hybrid babies and all. And it went off the rails. UFOs went off the rails. And uh, for me, I can't. I, I have a conference that I uh, sponsor in Laughlin November 12 through 14, and there is no image of any gray alien or anything at that conference. It is a dialogue about what's really happening with the visitations on this planet. Okay, so the thing is this, that I was very close friends, just so that people understand I'm not making this up. I was really close to Clifford Stone, who was part of the Disclosure Project. He he was um, he was crash retrieval, and and Cliff and I stayed in touch, and I published his book Eyes Only. And since he had twelve crash retrievals with real live aliens and dead ones too during the crashes, I asked him number one. I said, are they hostile? And he said, their visitors are like cosmic anthropologists. Number two, why are you saying there's 57 different races? And he, he told me before he died that he had a manual, that that manual was a first aid manual for 57 different races. So that if they found somebody that was hurt, they knew not to put alcohol on them or something that would hurt them. And so we're dealing with 57 different races, and yet the ignorance of the UFO community has it, reptilians, greys, and Nordics. So, you know, and then you look at the Virginia case down in, in Brazil that had the little red being there, and we're going to shove him. And we're going to shove some of the cases in Italy. <clears throat> so we need to change the way we think, James. So do you want me to start with the giant rock era of 1950s? Yeah, yeah, let's get into that because that has um, some interesting intersection with uh, Howard Hughes and some of the um, big names of the time back then. But just kind of, uh, yeah, walk us into um, kind of what happened there. What What is the big rock even? All right, well, the story is this, that, you know, and Jacques and I, Jacques Vallée, who is also Close Encounters, my life is Close Encounters, <clears throat> and I just discovered a case, 1945 of a crash, 13 miles from where the atomic bomb was, you know, blown off, blown. It was not a test, the atomic bomb. It was a real bomb in New Mexico. And what happened was we still have the uh, witnesses, we still have the location, and, the, and they were children at the time, and one of the little boys went inside the craft and pulled the piece out. So we even have the metal. When Jock and I were working on that, we realized it was not a flying saucer. It was an avocado-shaped craft, exactly like the casing of the atomic bomb. So we're looking at a case, the 1945 crash from the book Trinity, and I hope people read uh, that looks like the atomic bomb. So what does that tell you? That we did something really bad, 1945. So what that caused was alarm, an alarm throughout the cosmos. And we had these visitations in Southern California and in New Jersey, in Highbridge, New Jersey, with Howard Menger. We had these visitations from human-type beings whose main message was do not use nuclear energy. You're going to blow yourselves up. You're setting yourselves up. When it happened in 1952 to Adamski, and I've been to the location where he, where Orthon came off the ship, he put his feet down, and George Hunt Williamson even made plaster casts of his shoes. So he was real. And he told Adamski, go around the world to to tell the people that they had a choice. They could run a planet, according to the war industry, which they have been doing forever, and it was a military-industrial complex, but they would have to invent the wars, which we have, 
I don't have to name them all. Or in 1952, we were on a timeline where we could switch to a space-based uh, economy. And, and what Orthon said was, look, you, you can change to a space-based economy because you're going to have a president, Kennedy, who's going to, you know, institute going to the stars and you can meet us and you can make equal amount of money. Now, we're doing that today. And look at all space is business. We have we have uh, Elon Musk, we have Virgin Air, we have uh, you know, um, and they've got a spaceport down in New Mexico, and we've got all the big top guys making money, and that was the message in the fifties, you know, you guys could make money and get off the war economy. So Adamski went all over the place. He went to the Queen of the Netherlands. He he met with top level people, but Adamski's people. Adamski's contact, Orthon said they came from Venus. So I've seen through the Adamski uh, Association uh, Polaroids of these beings with Adamski. And they look like us. In fact, they're overdressed. They're wearing a suit. They blonde, uh, uh, The one I saw was a blonde young man. And, you know, I was told th those are the beings. They were in the car with Adamski. They followed him. At the same time in Italy, the very same time, 1952, 53, 56, we had Eugenio Siracusa on the island of, of Sicily who met with the same people. They looked the same. They had the same outfit that, uh, that Orthon had on. And Eugenio had, had witnesses there. And I've talked to his followers. And he said these people would walk in and out of his house, and they had these outfits, these space outfits on. They were blonde. Now, let's not call them Nordic because it gets ridiculous. You know, we're shoving everybody into a – but they were blonde, and they also said they came from Venus. Now, whether they come from Venus or not doesn't matter. I don't think the people that are on Venus call themselves Venus. They're not Americans. You know, they don't know. They've got another name for the, for planets that they're on. So that, you know, just that cancels everything out, which is ridiculous, you know. They couldn't possibly come. No, they didn't, but people saw them there, so they're there. So you better get a clue that, you know, they're there. Uh, when um, when Siracusa uh, 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 got the very same message, then Eugenia Siracusa also went around Europe, like Adamski did the same time with the same message. So these beings do not just go to the United States. So the following of Eugenio Setacusa, if people want to look at that, is the same thing as Adamski, the very same story. On the East Coast, there was Howard Manger, and I think it's important that people look at that. Highbridge, New Jersey, none of my colleagues have followed on that one. And where he saw, and if you look at, the book is from outer space to you. The photographs and the movies of the craft and and the shadows of the people that got off. I've got even one step further that I will give you, James, because when um, Mentor started his lectures in his backyard, he has an orchard. He had a friend named August Roberts who was a photographer at that time of UFOs, but. Menger said, come to my meeting, he said, because there's going to be three strangers there that are not from here. So I have an audio tape of, of, uh, of August Roberts talking to Wendell Stevens, who I think is the greatest researcher that ever lived, saying, I got there and I didn't know who they were, but there were these three overdressed people who were very beautiful sitting in, in uh, Menger's backyard. At that time, Howard was married uh, to... I think her name was Rose, and and he was lecturing. And these three people were there with all these little kids, and these uh, there were a hundred people there. So I have like fifty pictures of a of of a orchard with all these people there, and these people are totally overdressed. And that is where the Val Thor story comes from. Uh, he's sitting there. Uh, we have enlarged the notepad that's on his arm and there are pictures never before published of just the orchard and Howard and Rose sitting there and that isn't made up that that is a real story but then it's normal in those days 
it's normal to have, you know, people from other places. I saw the Polaroid of Adamski with the blonde guy. Uh, and I talked to Glenn Steckling, who was nine years old, and saw them. They sat on the couch, you know, in his house. And um, so in those days, and the fact that somebody like George Van Tassel, who works for Lock, uh, for Douglas Aircraft, and you had mentioned before you want me to mention Howard Hughes. Well, if he's working for Douglas Aircraft, everybody's looking at the skies. Van Tassel is renting in Landers, California, uh, an airstrip. He's, he's, he's camping with his family under a giant rock, which is a Native American sacred spot. And this being lands on the airstrip and comes over to him and starts talking to him and, and starts telling him and giving him ideas of technology <clears throat> and how to build the Integratron, which is not only uh, it's, a, it's a cell rejuvenation chamber. The message between Van Tassel and uh, what's his name, and Howard Menger on the East Coast is similar. Because at the back of Menger's book, these beings had given him fruits and vegetables. I even have the pictures, thanks to August Roberts, of the uh, of the places that Van Tassel, I mean, that Menger sent these fruits and vegetables to be analyzed in New Jersey. So they were real. And at the end of his book, they said, keep your blood alkaline because you won't have cancer. It's important that you people live longer than you live. You don't even live to be 100, and they're living to be 700. So the the message there in New Jersey is the same as the one in California, where um, the uh, the being said to uh, Van Tassel, we're going to give you a plan to get a rejuvenation chamber for yourself so you can live longer. Uh, because it was made the way it was, it was also... Uh, had Tesla coils touted as as a time machine. So I've been to, I haven't been to New Jersey, but I have been to Giant Rock so many times. And how I got there was the, um, the, the help of Robert Short, because when I met Robert Short, he began to tell me that he was part of the Van Tassel group and that they they would have 32,000 people there at conventions and that UFOs would appear on top of the rock. And then Robert Short told me, and his book is called Out of the Stars, that he also met a being, a, a person that walked up to his car while he was driving from Northern California to Southern California. And this being said, you can communicate with us on shortwave radio. And that's what they were doing in the 1950s until the FBI found the frequency and said, you can't talk to enemies like that. So the only way they could get around it was those people, those contacts that were talking to Van Tassel, Howard Short, uh, I mean, um, Van Tassel, uh, Robert Short, all of those people that were part of that, that were contacted in the 1950s, and we're talking 1952 to 1960, since they couldn't talk to him on shortwave, then began to channel. And that's when people used to go to Giant Rock, and they, and with the permission of a Van Tassel who would channel, and of a Robert Short who completely, you know, leaves his body and another voice comes through it, how do I know that? Because I brought him back in 2014 and heard it happen. I have the video of Robert Short near Giant Rock with UFOs that appeared, by the way, uh, channeling uh, the person that he was channeling at that time. Uh, and it was a space person. So <clears throat> I realized that that was normal. That was what was happening. <clears throat> and, of course, that's very dangerous because they're getting messages from Cosmos and somebody doesn't like that. So uh, that whole movement, which is called the Space Brother Movement, it's so important to understand the history of ufology. I don't know if you have any questions, but you mentioned Howard Hughes. Well, it wasn't just Howard Hughes. It was Norman Paulson and Howard Hughes. It was the time that the New Age Movement started with Maharishi, the Enlightenment, the, uh, because it was the ET's way of switching our way of thinking to one that's more cosmic, that's one that's more related to the Eastern religions. And they figured we could get together better with that kind of thinking. And that's when the New Age movement started in California 
um, with Yogananda, but like everything, we put money to it and it became a business. So that you have to study the history of ufology to understand the history of contact. Well, and with the new age stuff, um, I think a lot of people get turned off because the, the focus gets changed from, you know, the information, the download, the, you know, like you said, there was the channeling. Um, I think people kind of, they kind of assign it to a different, a different area or, or like you said, it becomes like a, a money-making thing and then it becomes, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better word, tainted. So that that's a very interesting kind of origin story of, of kind of how things shifted, I guess. But they tried. I think they tried. I think in 1952, 1960, 1965, I think they tried. I mean, it started with Yogananda's ideas and uh, in Southern California. I mean, California would be the place to start these things. And uh, Giant Rock, to me, is sacred because the ETs came to the United States uh, in particular to contact these people. And then the, then my whole field of ufology just completely dismisses Adamski, completely dismisses Van Tassel and Menger, or Theo Angelucci. My God, I have pictures of all of these guys uh, that were all contacted. Or Theo Angelucci actually worked for Lockheed Martin and met Jupiter along the Los Angeles River. I went to the place. I mean, these are real things that happen, so nobody really cares. And they're 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 stuck on the on the on the alien abduction thing, which is ridiculous. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you want me to talk about human aliens? It stopped there. It stopped. The only thing I can think of that where I can add to it, but I don't want to go into detail. Is I interviewed uh, Charles Hall uh, that in 1965 on the base uh, of uh, it was area it, near Area 51. It was near Dogbone Lake uh, in Indian Springs. Charles Hall, who was a weatherman, interacted with human type aliens with their children in the books Millennial Hospitality. It was 1965 during the Vietnam War. The story is just. One year he was there, just one year. I wouldn't go any farther. I would read just the one year he was there because then he went to Vietnam. His details of being with these children and these human-type aliens who were locked on that base, they were not allowed to go off of it, and it was a technology exchange, even though they did go off of it. And I took Charles Hall to Indian Springs and had him retell the story, so he's telling the truth. That is the only time I've heard in the United States of human-type aliens uh, in 65. So we're, we're not talking now. Uh, we're, we're talking back 50s and 60s. So a, a quick question, a quick interjection there. Is in, isn't Indian Springs really close to where the Manhattan Project was developed? No, no. Manhattan Project is, is our book, Trinity. It's Socorro, New Mexico. Okay. But what was there, and you're right about that, was when they they exploded the atomic bomb there. They, it was 150 miles square miles of contamination. They went from there to the Nevada test site, and then they started testing there, the Nevada test site. But I'm not sure that's near Indian. That's more near. Oh my goodness, it's on the border of Arizona. It's near because because I talked to Travis Walton and all the fallout came into Sholo and those places. The Nevada test site did a lot of damage. Um, but Indian Springs, what they were doing there was they were testing vehicles. So the tall whites that were there had like a vehicle that was like a scout ship that looked like an RV. And if you read Charles' books, Millennial Hospitality, one, two, and three in particular, you realize what was going on. And he's not lying. I mean, that, that, but just for your audience, they'll say, well, where did the human type, well, they went to Latin America. So that my last five years now has been going to Chile, the Atacama Desert twice, Argentina, Cordoba, uh, Bogota, Colombia, and uh, Mexico, and that's where the human-type aliens went. 
They went to speak to the Latin American people because they got it. They were they're people that don't care whether they shoot down a, a craft to get the propulsion system. You think they're going to come back here? Why, why would they do that? I mean, they would be shot down. The propulsion system is all anybody cares about in the United States. Nobody cares about the message. Nobody cares that we are connected. Nobody cares that we belong to the cosmos. The military-industrial complex, as um, Eisenhower warned everybody, it, it took over the ufology stuff. So all the ufology stuff for me, Paula Harris, in the United States is totally contaminated. It's it's got other agendas, whether it be the 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 paperwork that's coming out of the Pentagon. They didn't sit down over a cup of coffee and say, "Let's tell the people the truth." Finally, no, they're not doing that. What they're doing is going, we need to tell them there's a threat if we need to create the wars. So let's get some more weapons so we can keep this military industrial complex machine going because we don't have any more enemies. So that is where that is going. Remember the Adamski uh, problem when when Orthon said you can switch to a space-based economy or you can keep doing the war economy. And if people bother, they should listen to Adamski's lectures there on on YouTube where he talks to the people and says, this planet is based on war and reconstruction. War and reconstruction, that's what makes the money. So that is the history of the American human-type alien situation. Um, are there still those guys? Yeah, Cl uh, Clifford mentioned to me that, that every now and then, uh, uh, UFO, I mean, alien families were are implanted in in certain cities, and that they, that there still is that going on, but not to the level of the 1950s. My God, there were heavy messages. Now, you asked me about Europe. Do you have any questions about what I just mentioned here? Um, my only question, or I guess um, I would like you to expand a little bit more on uh, Valiant Thor, because there's that um, conversation about him being in the Pentagon around the Eisenhower era. And then it, so it's interesting that then Eisenhower kind of has that warning right around that time. Well, the problem is that the Valiant Thor story has been bastardized all over the place because he becomes a folk hero. But if he's sitting in Howard Menger's backyard, he's real. And he's got with him, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Jill and his brother Don. And then I have these pictures of Menger with his arms around these Venusians, and they're all pure light. You can't even see their faces. And I can send you a couple of these so you, your people can see them. Because they're regular people. It's just that when they come out on, on a negative, uh, it, it they they're all light. It's all light body. I have seen that. Um, I, I've seen that photo. That's yeah. outstanding. Yeah. Well, though that comes from a, the Howard. That comes from uh, Wendell Stevens' archive. The guy that that bought those photos pays pay a lot of money for them, and he shared them with me. Thank God, because uh, they're historical photos. Um, but. Uh, so he, he went and he, the, okay, so what happens? We get the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still with Robert Wise, okay? At that time, because Hollywood is following along with this, and I'm talking to Robert Short, and I said, well, you know, that's the Val Thor story right there, except the guy comes out, we shoot him, of course, we're going to do that. Uh, and he, and, and of course, at the very end, which is a beautiful speech, um, you know, Klaatu says to the world, you guys aren't ready to go anywhere, you know, you, you unless you grow up. You, and, of course, we're still there. I don't see who'd want us. But anyway, so I said to um, Robert Short, these are personal things. I said, oh, that's amazing. I said that they made that movie. It's like exactly the Val Thor story. And he goes, yeah. Uh, he said, Remy, uh, what's his name? Um Michael Remy at the end, that speech was channeled. He said there was, it was not in the script. And and Robert Rice said to him, oh, how are you going to end this? And he goes, never mind, let me just talk. So that speech at the end of that movie is all channeled. And I'm going, oh, they shoved themselves into movies. That's really interesting. So channeling gets shoved into a movie like the Davier stood still. 
So that came out. So that's a blatant message right there. <clears throat> and so, um, uh, what's his name? Frank Strangis, who became friends with Valsor, actually went to Lake Mead where Victor One <clears throat> is was cloaked over. Lake. I've been to Lake Mead too. Very strange place, man. It's very strange. <clears throat> All these little islands in there. And um, uh, a, a Stranger in the Pentagon, the actual book by, uh, and I've talked to also Strangest's wife, Julie, uh, is is clear about the mission of Valthor. It's clear that Strangest walked in with him uh, to the Pentagon. And, of course, by the time that um, uh, uh, Valthor got to, to Eisenhower, it was over. Eisenhower couldn't do anything. Neither, no president can do anything. The thing was in the hands of the military-industrial complex, and still is. And that's who's releasing all these. Uh, you know, uh, every every time we get these papers, they're going to release. Pentagon's going to release this or going to release that. It's going to be a matter of national security. Nobody. They wouldn't even say that this had to do with aliens. They don't even mention the word. Uh, I hate to use aliens, but extraterrestrials or any kind of visitation, whether it be interplanetary or interdimensional, either one, they won't mention that. I mean, are you kidding? They they won't go that far. So yeah, uh, Eisenhower knew. Of course he knew. I th- I believe Eisenhower had a meeting with them at Murak, at at Edwards. Uh, you know, at uh, the Holloman landing. I believe all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, and to your point about about the, um, you know, we'll, we'll call it disclosure in quote, quotations from, from the Pentagon. That's, I mean, I just see that as more of a money grab, more of a, um, I mean, at what point would they ever disclose how many trillions of dark dark money they've funneled into these programs? And, you know, it's just to kind of, like you said, to perpetuate and to become a gravity well for, for people to, to jump on and, and say, oh, it's, you know, this is a real thing. Now, the, the good part that I do see coming out of that is it's more in common vernacular, common uh, conversation. There's an awareness there. But then again, it's still kind of like it lead, you know, if you follow the breadcrumbs it does lead to quite the dead end. So, no, you're right. I mean, we can talk about this, James, with nobody laughing, because it comes out of the Pentagon. So nobody's going to laugh, uh, and and it's real dialogue. Uh, that is the good part. Okay, I will say that, but it has an agenda, and what you have to look at is everything that comes out of anybody's mouth has an agenda. In other words, they're doing it for a reason. And, uh, and they're not doing it because they want you to know the truth. <laughs> Anybody who wants to know the truth about this better start reading. I can le- give you the list of books. I mean, From Outer Space to You by Menger, Adamski's Flying Saucers of Landed. I've met Desmond Leslie that wrote the book with him. Um, you know, all the books look on YouTube for Van Tassel talking about these people that he met. I mean, start doing some research on your own. That's where it's going to come. Not not from anybody that's, you know, in top level. They have no real reason to do it. Um, you they have every, are, every reason not to do it. <laughs> well, because you have to prepare society. I did a story with Michael Wolf once, and he said, Paula, you can't pull the rug out from people without replacing it with something. You know, and he's right. And I don't know what to replace it with, uh, except the knowledge that we are connected to the cosmos. I mean, okay, look, we're we're people, but we're not. We're we're connected to the stars, and the and the, the easier you get a clue, the better it is. But we're living in a fear-based world with COVID, and um, we're living in a fear-based world. And as long as we live in a fear-based world, we're manageable. We're manageable as a human race. Uh, were manageable, but then if we were living in a in a freedom thinking world, we're not manageable. <laughs> and I, that's the part that's really crazy. Um, yeah, and, and so, to that to that point, you know, uh, when we're in in that fear base, you know, the problem reaction solution when you can 
you know, almost be steered into things because of that. Um, it, it's a hard time to stand independent and, uh, you know, push back on that tide of, of, uh, the solutions, so to speak. Um, I, d- I did want to circle back on, uh, you mentioned Italy and how open they were, and we didn't talk about the friendship case there. If we could just touch on that yeah, before well, we go to South America. All right. Well, the, I was, you know, I was trying to, it's like putting a pieces of the puzzle together. So I had all of Southern California all, and then I had Howard Manger on the East coast. And, um, I was wondering what's going on. And then I had Eugenio Siracusa on the island of Sicily. And when I was living in Italy, uh, this case came up, but I personally knew Stefano Brescia, who wrote Mass Contacts and 50 Years of Amicizia, because I was involved with the ufologist here in Italy, and, and Stefano Brescia is the one that wrote this book. And he trusted me. He get, left me everything. He left me uh, the voices of the B, of the of the W56s on an on, a, on an audio recording. He left me photos, movies. He left me things when he died, just before he died. So I was able to interview Gaspera di Lama up in Lake Como. Lake Como is where George Clooney lives, you know, everybody knows. But Gaspera di Lama is one of the w, uh, of the Amicizia experimenter people. He and his wife were part of that. And to explain that, these human-type beings, anywhere from three feet to 15 feet tall, came to a place in the Adriatic coast called Pescara, or Monte Silvano, right around there. And I've been there very many times. And they said they had a base underground and a base in the water there. And they uh, tried with 10 Italians to form friendships. So amicizia in Italian means friendship. And they said, we'll stay with you. You contact us through Crystal Radio. Does that sound familiar? Uh, you know, like they did in, in, in California. Uh, and we will appear to you every now and then, but we need your help. So you mentioned Bruno Samachicha. They went after Bruno Samachicha, who was wealthy, because Bruno Samachicha could provide them in the book with Menger, they're vegetarian. In Amicizia, they're vegetarian. All these pe- beings are like us. They eat. You know, they're vegetarian. So Bruno Samachichi, who had the money, uh, used to get truckloads of fruits and vegetables, pay for it, take the driver in to have coffee. And when the driver came out, the, the truck was empty. So they were using by location to bring in the fruits and vegetables. I mean, this is true. and and then some of them that were physically able to were lodged in Rocapia, which is an old abandoned castle where Bruno was able to make the beds long enough and, and accommodate their physicalness. But their physicalness, just like the ones that Manger had, could disappear if they bilocate. And so they said to the 10 Italians, and I talked to Gospeda about this and his wife, we can stay with you as long as you guys don't fight. The minute you start fighting, we have to leave because we cannot bear that vibration. We have a technology, and they call it technology, called Ureda. And Ureda is a technology where everybody has to have a dialogue and everybody has to more or less get along. Well, after 10 years, you know, you got Italians, some of them saying, oh, you, you saw that? And, uh, you didn't tell me? Or they talked to you and they didn't talk to me? And so the W-56s, and that's what they decided to call them, was W-56s because it was 1956. So you can remember the date this happened. Now, was it only Bruno Samachicha? No. Consul Perigo was involved, and he was very well-known personality in ufology, and so were the cardinals of the Vatican. The Vatican knows everything. They were involved in that case. There's a list of people that were high-level um, people in Italy at the time that knew about this, but they didn't think it was weird. They weren't looking at little gray aliens, okay? They were looking at people from outer space. And it was an attempt to see if they could 
be friends. And of course, it didn't work very well. Um, it gets, for people who want to read this case, 50 Years of Amicizia by Stefano Breccia, B-R-E-C-C-I-A, uh, is a good, is I, I, I think that's how you spell his last name. <clears throat> but it's got details of how they tried to work this out. Stefano was also involved, but he is with us, so I had to go to Gaspare di Lama and his wife. Beautiful, beautiful interview they gave me. If you want to hear it, it's on my YouTube channel. You see me sitting there in Lake Como with this man. He's telling the truth, and his wife is telling the truth. My only problem with that video is that as he's talking, I have to translate from Italian to English. But I am going to speak to the real people. I'm not believing mythology. There is no mythology here, okay? So I've spoken to them and other people involved in the case, but then I found out about the one in Chile. The friendship case in Chile, I interviewed two years ago because I happened to be in Chile, and um, Octavio Ortiz came to a restaurant and told me how he had met the ETs who were on the island of Chiloé and asked the friendship of the people on the coast, and he was one of them. He said the ET looked very German-like. He had very short hair, cut blue eyes, blonde hair. Talked to his wife and kids and said, do you want to come over to the island? They were healing people. They were also working with technology. The ETs that are visiting their human life are very interested in modern technology. So that, where is that? That is on my uh, my um, channel, my uh, website www.paolahararif, Paula Harris at Hotmail. I have my interview with Octavio Ortiz there because if there's two friendships, there's going to be two reasons or two ways they try to make friends. And, of course, the Chiloé thing in uh, in um, Chile didn't work either. Uh, he, you know, it, it, it was very frustrating because I know he's talking about extraterrestrial beings that came to his house to talk to his wife and kids. And I'm going, man, would I like to meet these people? <laughs> it's like very hard. Uh, but he's telling the truth. So, and, and how many of my colleagues go to Chile to talk to the people? Come on. That usually uh, in the UFO field, nobody leaves their house. So like, I, I've accumulated all this for people to understand that we have still visitations. Now, the very last one, and this will help you, if you, I have a conference again in Laughlin. I'm bringing him there. Sisto Paz Wells. I figured that from Southern California, they went to Peru. So in the Chilka Desert in 1975, Sisto Paz and Charlie, his brother, and eight other young men had contact with human-type aliens who would land their ship and ask Sisto, his brother, and the boys to come in. And I interviewed Sisto's brother in Canada, who was transgendered into Veronica Hoswell. Same story, human-type spacemen come in, we'll talk to you. But in order for them to land, they did something very interesting. They required that the people who were there in the Chilka Desert would fast and meditate and do mantras for at least three days before they landed. So I then contacted the followers of Sisto and ended up with Ricardo Gonzalez. Now, for the people that want to know about Ricardo, you need to go to my www um, Starworks USA site because coming he's coming Prestone and Ricardo Gonzalez was a follower of Cistos and he has had eight encounters with human type beings. I was there at one of them. It was in the Atacama Desert in the Valle de la Luna in 2000. I think it was 2016, I saw the ships over my head. I saw Ricardo disappear in the sand dunes. 
and I'll end with this, James, and you can ask me questions. He came back with the message from the ships, these human-type people saying that the planet was in ecological danger and that we better do something fast because we have passed the point of no return. And they were watching, they're watching to see if we make it through the ecological danger, not war or anything, ecological now. And they had planned to help give us a hand if we asked for it. And the book on Amazon is called The Ark, like Noah's Ark. And worse comes to worse, they were going to lift the kids off the planet, at least try to save some of humanity. But people need to know the new messages are all ecological. That's very interesting. Um, I think about what, the first thing that came to mind when you said ecological. I think about Fukushima and what what a mess it's been and continues to be, um, you know, with just massive amounts of radiation going into the ocean and ruining the ocean floor. And that, that obviously is going to have kind of a ripple effect for many, many years to come when this, uh, you know, half-life of stuff is in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, it does have an effect. So I don't know if that specifically is. Well, it's not just, it's not just weather. It's the use of fossil fuels, gasoline, gas, you know, it's, it's, it's like I support 100% Dr. Stephen Greer, who knows that in 1950s we could have switched over to a free energy society. And when you don't do that and you have carbon emissions and you have cars and you have gas and you have wars over oil and petroleum and all that, you're asking for trouble because that's not natural to the planet. Uh, you know, all of the oil and everything. If we could, with the technologies that we've gleaned from them, have a clean, free energy world, and and uh, and that. And if you listen to the messages of Stephen, he's very right on there. He did. He doesn't have. He may not have the background of where it came from, but we were given all the technology, technological tools by these people to switch over into another economy. Here we are, still using gas and oil, which everybody has to pay for, and so forth. You know. So, I mean, that seems very ignorant if you're looking at how long we've been doing that. Uh, so it, it's not just that the, the heat, everything's heating up and the glaciers are melting and all of that. It's the way that we use transportation. Well, and I think we, you know, we showed during the pandemic when things were locked down, it cleaned up a lot of things when there was less transportation happening. Um, I think a lot of our pocketbooks felt that too, without, you know, filling up our tanks as much. Um, but now, you know, things opening back up, you know, it's, it's right back at it. Um, I did want to. Are you right? I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because if people are watching, people are smart. They know that if that happened, you don't need to say whether climate change is real or not. If that happened, during the pandemic, to me, that's science and what were people's yeah, brains. Yeah, we had some of the most clear photos, photographs of the Los Angeles area in a long time. Um, there, there was some, fa- some fantastic photography that happened during that time to show kind of the before and after effects in some of these inversion areas and high traffic areas. Um, so, you know, and that's not, I, I think about... Um, I think about there's so many other sources of, of, um, you know, of, of pollution that, you know, outside of a consumer level, you know, corporations, uh, some of the manufacturing facilities and things in China that are just not as regulated. And, um, you know, you get different, different areas that basically are just, you know, they're breathing a, a black, black soot, so to speak. Um, it gets pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Well, it is, and it can. Be, well, it's too. Anyway, the message is that it's almost too late to reverse it. But I mean, that's what they're interested in. They're not interested in having hybrid babies and doing any of this other stuff that our mythology has, or killing people, or eating them, or all this other stuff that I hear in the UFO uh, community. But we've got to get off of this mythology, what's called mythology, and look at the clear messages. Uh, that are happening, um, and the fact that some of them are living among us. And there's a book I want to uh, 
talk about that. I wanted to bring him to my conference, but he can't leave Tokyo. Michelle Zerger, Z-I-R-G-E-R, wrote a book. Um, they are here, visitors without passports. It is a book that will blow people's minds because it deals with the uh, the the human-looking ones living in different countries and and how they appear and uh, how they try to. They're trying slowly to change the thinking into a more peaceful kind of thinking. So they are here, visitors without passports. is an amazing, amazing book. You know, you'd think that we'd all be trying to seek these people out or have a way. I don't know. I, I guess a, a, a strong desire to, to have that kind of, yeah. Because I mean, outside information, so to speak. And I have a I have a Patreon channel, and so I interviewed um, Michelle, and I said, "You've written all the books on Adamski. You've written books on George Williams, and he uses the research who did the plaster cast the worth on." I said, "Did you ever meet any of these people?" And he said. He's French and he's living in Tokyo with his Japanese wife. And he said they went to a restaurant and they were eating and these two very, very good looking blonde guys came in. They look like male models. He said they were very good looking and they came into the Japanese restaurant. He looked up at them and thought in his brain, I wonder if they're extraterrestrials. And they, they went to eat. They finished their meal. On the way out of the restaurant, they hand him a napkin. And on the napkin in French, so I don't know how they knew he was French. They wrote "New Sami Sea, we are here." And you can you can ask Michel himself yeah. uh, about that. He was in shock because they not only heard his mental question, they knew he was French. So the answer they gave him was French, not in Japanese or English or anything. And I said, "Are you kidding?" And he goes, "No." They said, "We are here." And, and then I asked Timothy Good, who I think is the best field researcher in the world, because my, my colleagues don't go anywhere. They don't do field research. And, and I asked Timothy, I said, yeah, did you ever meet anybody? And he said, yeah. He said, in a hotel in London, this man came in all dressed up, very well dressed, three-piece suit, navy blue, was reading the newspaper. And Timothy got a funny feeling, and he mentally said, if you are not here, Will you take your right index finger and put it on the left side of your nose? And the guy did that. And so I said, what, what did he do? And he goes, he, well, he, he completely folded up his newspaper and walked out. I was, I was shocked. He said that he, I mean, right index finger on the left side of your nose. That doesn't say, will you wave to me? That's like a lot of trouble. And I'm going... So you're telling me that if you're working in this area, like me, I'm hoping, uh, they're going to appear to you or see you on the street and know you're working in this area. And he's going, yes. So I'm thinking, okay, well, whatever, you know. Uh, but these are top-level people uh, that are telling me that they've had these encounters. So it's not impossible. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of people would um, ascribe that uh, the benevolence, the peacefulness, and the messages to what used to be called the angelic. Um, you know, and angels, actually, that word translates to being a messenger, right? So we're getting messages from from other places, from people that actually live a peaceful way. Like, there's some takeaways there for sure as far as, as how to live and to avoid contention uh, that's that's actually a really interesting message just kind of within uh, encapsulated in something you said. We do have um, an interesting account that actually happened in Montana, and this comes from uh, a man named, uh, let's see, I believe it's Warren Aston, and he investigated a Montana story from... 1930, let's see, actually it's a different year. Uh, in the summer of 1948, so around the same time. Um, so uh, this guy's name was Udo Wartena, and he was a Dutch immigrant living in Montana, and I believe he was a farmer. 
And he says the ship looked like a blimp, but more pointed and not as thick in the middle. While the ground sloped away, the ship remained on a level hover. As I stood there, a stairway was let down. A man came down and started walking towards me. As I was somewhat more than interested, I went to meet him. He stopped, and when we were about 10 or 12 feet apart, a being that appeared like a man came down out from the ship. The being asked Wartena if they could take some water. Wartena watched as they lowered a hose from the ship, and being then invited Wartena to come, uh, the being then invited Wartena to come aboard. After he had entered the ship, I had noticed that the sound I had heard outside was hardly noticeable. He wrote, I, so I asked him what caused the noise or humming. He said this would be a bit complicated, but he would try to explain so I could understand. The man said two flywheels moving in opposite direction, directions created the ship's gravitation. The ship also used energy from the stars for power and momentum. Uh, it goes on to say that um, he asked uh, about all these different parts of the craft, and they said that they would split um, water for, for oxygen and hydrogen. Um, so they'd split the water into hydrogen and oxygen and use both parts for their craft. And um, another part of it that's really interesting is that he says... Um, cause the man was religious. He said, do you know about Jesus Christ or Jehovah? And they said, we know of these things, but we cannot, we cannot, you know, discuss them with you. I thought that was a really interesting aspect to that. Has there been any other kind of religious as- aspects that come through or that cross over or that acknowledge, or at least, um, point in that direction? Yeah, but the, <clears throat> For people that really are spiritual and religious, Jesus only said two things. Love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. And those are two things we don't do. Because if we believe that God is nature and the universe, we certainly aren't being good about it. (laughs) Uh, And God is in everything. We certainly did not listen to that. And as far as love your neighbor and yourself, there's so much division, racism and everything Jesus were here, he'd be appalled. He'd be absolutely shocked at what happened. So I think that that kind of message is a message that comes from the stars. Uh, and it was attempted on this planet, and like everything else, it gets, you know, contaminated. And uh, to form anything that would separate all of us, I think that if there's ET races, and there are, they don't know where to go. I mean, where are they going to go? I mean, we're so separated. We're not like the human species. We're like Chinese and Russian and American. And where are they going to go? I mean, who is going to represent this planet? I remember talking to Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut, who's my friend. And I said, do you think we're ready for contact? He goes, absolutely not. He said, until we come together as one. Where, where are they going to go? Who are they going to talk to? And and so it's, I don't know what to tell you. Um, the South American messages, the Latin American ETs or the Latin American messages are come together for world peace. So the reason why I support Ricardo Gonzalez and people could look on the Starworks um, website is because he works mostly for world peace. He doesn't work for UFOs. He doesn't work for aliens. He works to come together for a common threat. And for the humanity, James, common threat is survival anymore. I mean, forget about our, and, anything else. I mean, survival is, 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 you know, we all have kids. We all have dreams of the future. We all love this planet. Why is everybody getting lost in things that are not going to be um, a, a legacy for our children's children's children. They're getting lost in ridiculousness when we should be coming. If, if people are spiritual or religious, they're, those two messages of Jesus, there's nothing else. You know, I mean, to me, nature, God and, and is the most important. And then, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. My God, 
it, 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 where is that happening? Uh, you know, and, and uh, I'm thinking, all right, well, that's such a huge assignment. What do you do? So I, my job is just to get people to go back to read source material. You want to know about Adamski? Read Dembski's books. You want to know about Menger? Read Menger's books. You want to know about Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée? Read their books. Uh, don't go to YouTube and get a rehashed, uh, uh, you know, opinionated thing from somebody who is totally ignorant. And you have to go to the original source material. It's just like you want to read the Bible, go to the Bible. I mean, don't don't go to anything except source material. And because I am a teacher and because I do have a, a master's degree uh, in, in education, I, I would never give any of my students any credit if they were taking stuff off YouTube. So, you know, they need to go and read. And of course, in my case, I go to the place and talk to the people in my case. Uh, but um, try to form some uh, logical and uh, beneficial view of contact. Stop calling it abductions. You know, you know nothing. You know, abductions. The human uh, version of that is you never put the people back. You kill them and throw them away or something. You know, the people that are contacted, they're contacted, and they usually aren't contacted. So they can go on a stage and make a lot of money and meet people. That's not the reason they're contacted. They're contacted in order to change something. And if they are going to change something, it better be now. It's a very strong message. I really appreciate you taking the time to go over these, these um, different uh, key figures and, and incidents and uh, visitors. I think, it's, I think it's outstanding. And I think it's something that we need to, needs to be discussed more. And I, I applaud you for the work that you're doing and being able to get out there and, and dig in and, and meet these people. Um, I'd like you to, you covered a lot of different sites, like uh, you had two websites. I think you had your email in there as well. And then you also mentioned your Trinity book with um, Jacques Vallée. I'd, I'd like you to, if, if you'd like, you can go ahead and just kind of plug kind of your work where people can find you and um, kind of where things are headed for you. In 1945, two little boys saw uh, a, 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 a vehicle crash. It was not a flying saucer, but it was a space vehicle with three little beings inside. And the boys were um, nine-year-old uh, Jose Padilla and six-year-old, seven-year-old Remy Baca. And they had telepathic, um, they had telepathic exchange with these beings. And, and they saw the, the crash because the craft hit a uh, radio tower, and the boys watched the whole deal. And I've been on location now the last nine years, at least four times a year to the location. It is 13 miles away of where the atomic bomb um, crash, uh, was, uh, was. It wasn't tested where it was blown. Uh, and I, when I was working on it for five years, nothing happened. I couldn't go anywhere with this case, even though I had everything, including the nine-year-old had gone inside because it was a, an, uh, an eight-day recovery of this craft. He had gone inside when they weren't looking and pulled a piece off the inside wall of the craft. Then uh, and, uh, four years ago, along came Jacques Vallée, and he was blown away by this case. And we have been going down there last four years, at least three to four times a year. We have covered this case. We brought scientists there. Um, it is bigger than Roswell because we have everything at our hands. And the message is powerful because those beings did give us a donation or a message. That craft went into the annals of the Atomic Energy Commission, because that's all there was. There was no Army and Air Force. It was Army Air Force. There was no Air Force. And what we did <clears throat> was put all the pieces together of this puzzle in a magnificent book written by Jacques, who's a great writer. So everybody that reads Trinity goes, oh, my God, it reads like a mystery novel. I can't put it down. Well, the book has been translated into Italian, Spanish, French, and German. 
So the book is out there with a real story about a message about nuclear. And the uh, and also Jacques did a lot of work on the um, Japanese scene of the, uh, the uh, recapitulation of Japan, of their surrender. And it's not the way we think it went. So I really encourage people to read Trinity. You can get it on Amazon in an ebook, a paperback. Uh, or a paperback and it is I think my legacy and I know Jacques because I've been working on it for nine years and he's for far four and uh, people need to know that those are the stories that are the real ufology because we researched that the people are you know, still around and we researched that that was incredible story and um, and, uh, and yeah Please read Trinity, which came out, but I also have five or six other books that I've written with the interviews from everything I just told you in those books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lost River Legends. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and consider subscribing. Here at Lost River Legends, our primary focus is delivering unique topics, amazing guests, all paired with top-notch production value. The earth we live on has many hidden secrets, countless paranormal stories, and is filled with amazing, curious humans who are trying to find answers to life's questions. Here at Lost River Legends, we are no different. We believe an active curiosity to the unknown is ingrained in the human experience. We hope you'll join us on our journey to explore the lost legends of the earth by listening to past and future episodes. Until then, James and I wish you health, happiness, and a curious mind. And remember, the clock of life is ticking away. Don't waste another moment and live your best life.